Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters. Learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence, two things we all need, so that we can create those products that customers love. And speaking of love, I love good innovation stories as well, of how products came into being or how they were made more valuable. Our guest is Giles Lurie, and he loves them too, so much that he has written books with several innovation stories, including his most recent one titled, Inspiring Innovation, 75 Marketing Tales to Help You Find the Next Big Thing. Giles has worked on numerous innovation projects, leading to some major successes and surprisingly, okay, not surprisingly, some occasional failures. We all know that if we've been in any kind of innovation projects, they don't always work out. He has some good stories to tell. Now, remember, I take notes for you. If you find something you want to go back to or share with others, just check out the show notes. Those are at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 231. Now, let's hear the stories. Giles, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. So you wrote a very interesting book to me called Inspiring Innovation, 35 Marketing Tales to Help You Find the Next Big Thing. And I just love stories of innovation and how things came to be. And you have quite the history you know, of some companies and products that came to be maybe 100 plus years ago up through current times and just a wealth of history of interesting brands that many of us would recognize those stories. So first, just tell us how this book came to be. Well, I've been in marketing and branding now for probably more years than I'd care to remember. Um, And I run a lot of workshops, um, and quite a lot of them around innovation or brand stories. And I'm forever telling stories in those workshops, and people seem to enjoy them, get from them. And I always try and draw a moral at the end, something that people can take away. Uh Um, A good friend came up to me and said, Giles, have you ever thought about writing them down? I said, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, And so I wrote them down. And then I was lucky enough to find a publisher who was foolish enough to publish them. (laughs) Um, And uh, this is um, actually the third third volume of stories. But this time round, I wanted to find an angle. And it very much was about exactly as you've said, what was the inspiration behind some of those great brands, some of them very old, some of them very new? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love those stories too. And I think they help us as innovators, as product managers and leaders, just connect to what some successful brands have done and maybe some of the struggles along their way and where interesting ideas came from that we might not be familiar with all those stories. So let's tee those up in the book as the title indicates. There's 75 in our few minutes together. We won't get through all of them, but want to pull out some of your favorites. And as I look through it, some that I thought were particularly interesting. So why don't we start with Xerox? That was a story that us in America know somewhat about what they did for computer innovation that then led to Apple. But there was a backstory here I never knew about the copier. So tell us about Xerox. That's obviously very much was their first claim to fame. And so unlike Kodak that disappeared, Xerox obviously moved on and evolved. But Xerox copying um, came out of um, a piece of science which I'd never heard of till I looked into the story called uh, Xenography. Um, which sort of started to come up in the late 40s. And it was a a science that allowed people to use a mixture of heat and uh, ink to reproduce things. And about 19, end of the 1950s, um, 
the guy who was the co-founder, Chester Carlson, had managed to develop a copier that could do seven copies a minute, which at the time was absolutely revolutionary. There was only one slight snag, which was if your paper got snagged with a bit of heat and some chemicals, you could end up with it going up in flames. So you'd think, well, nowadays they might stop the launch because of that. Not back in those days. Yeah, back to the drawing board. Back in those days, (laughs) it was, no, you carry on regardless. So what do you do? You have to think laterally around the problem. So laterally around the problem is, what do you give people to induce them to buy this new photocopier? You give them a fire extinguisher. And that's how you get around it. So you may only be 80% certain of your product, but you give them the safety net anyway. And it seemed to pay off because in the first 20 years, they sold $40 billion worth of the original model, which was the the, uh, the Xerox 914. And you just go, yeah, it was probably a gamble worth making. And it's an interesting point nowadays where you talk to, particularly in the internet age, where launching when you're 80% there Mm -hmm. and then fine-tuning the final 20% in market actually can be a really effective strategy to use because that stretch to try and get that final 100% can take so long and actually so much quicker sometimes in the marketplace. Yeah, Xerox, obviously a big name in copiers, but I never knew they also provided fire extinguishers. Uh, I just just love that connection. And that was such a good example of improvising, of creating a workaround we have this problem that can jam and burst into flames. So let's provide a faxing shirt. Love that. And you're right. Get things to market and then learn how to make them better. Okay, let's move on. Another hmm. one that stood out to me that I was curious about too was e-leather. Yeah. E-leather is one of those really nice ones because people sometimes ask me, where do I get the stories from? And sometimes it is just a famous name and I'll go back and I'll do the research. E-leather I was lucky enough to do some work for. They're a company based in the Midlands in the UK. Um, and they're one of the highly rated, very green up-and-coming companies, but they're a fairly young company. Um, and the first time I went there, pinned to the wall was this poem. And I thought, this is a bit odd for an industrial firm to have a poem pinned on the wall. And it was actually a poem about the founder, who's a guy called Chris Bevan. And it's about how Chris Bevan never gives up and never says no to a challenge. And he had another trait, which was really interesting, which is he hated waste. He really, you know, back in the days, he really hated waste. And what he discovered was that for most leather, up to 50% of every hide could go straight to landfill mm. because it's that funny cow shape when you cut it off and people want the square bit in the middle. So all those bits around the outside quite often get sent to waste. So he started playing and was thinking he could produce some sort of um, heat cladding or something like that. But as he started to produce the products, and there is a story that goes that one day in the lab, he fell over and fell down on some of the basic fibers of it and flattened them. And he said, oh, that looks like I've managed to recreate leather there. So he went back and he had this process and developed a process that takes all that rough leather to bound its fiber levels and recompresses it using a, a really clever high-tech thing. And he can produce rolls of things that look like leather, they smell like leather, and are actually up to 60% leather, Uh they're easier to handle, they're lighter to use. So if you put them in cars and planes and trains, actually, they're more economical too. So you save on the leather that uh, you were going to throw in the landfill, you make transport more comfortable and more economical. Uh, Sounds like a win-win-win. 
and they wanted some help. So surprise, surprise, we, we jumped at the chance to help them. And they've been going strength to strength. And interestingly, just recently, they've now signed a deal with a, a little known, uh, you know, footwear manufacturer called Nike, huh. who, of course, um, also interested in how could they do something that is very leather-like, but is, um, you know, um, also much more, um, you know, upcycled and much more, you know, eco-friendly. And so they've just signed a deal with them. And it's, you know, it's an amazing success story, all from this guy's dedication, one of, you know, finding something he hated right? and then actually trying to find a problem for it. And, you know, back to trying to find a moral for it. Actually, it's really interesting how people say it is sometimes things that you hate that, um, you know, that really drive you on uh, in terms of that. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld says, actually, that's one of the things that drives innovation in his comedy Finding things he hates is actually, he says, one of his sources of inspiration too. And then poke there a little bit more and see what comes out. Yeah. Yeah. And I love these stories too that look at kind of the byproducts of other processes and things yeah. that we consider waste that offer value if we just think about them differently. So. Yeah. And, you know, those lead on, as you say, what's, what, what having now written so many stories is nice sometimes in the connections. Um, and at first level, you know, the next story has no connection until you say, well, actually, it's a, a byproduct. And uh, there was a young chap called Cheeseborough in the early 20th century who went west to make his fortune and found all these sort of um, rigs drilling oil out of the ground. Hmm. What he spotted was that the riggers were using one of the byproducts, which was the rod wax, the, the wax around the edge of the, the bit that goes into the earth to get out the earth. And he noticed that they were rubbing them on his skin and things. And they said, yeah, it helped with burns, it helped with cuts and all of that. He took this black gooey stuff away, managed to sort of reformulate it and produce a lighter version, and we now all use it as Vaseline. Huh. And, you know, it came out of him just watching this and going, that's interesting. Why are they doing that? Is there something there? And is that just sort of... You look at something and then go, can I reframe it? Can I reuse it? Can I learn something about it just because something unusual is happening? Yeah. Uh, example I ran into was a dairy that I went and turned once, and they make milk. They also make cottage cheese. And they told me they were spending $25,000 a month with the local wastewater department because that was the cost of having to flush down the byproduct of the cottage cheese process. Yeah. And what they were looking forward to was being able to invest in the machine that turns that into whey powder instead of the whey liquid they flush. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being a cost to the wastewater place, now they can turn it into whey powder that is actually a revenue-generating mm. product. So, Yeah, and it is those sort of little ways where you go, you know, it's almost that sort of, uh, what's the phrase, where you, you know, their bio bio-linked in terms of that, like the bird that sits on top of the hippo and eats the ticks and things like that. You know, in, in the brewing process, you know, you the off-product is yeast. And in the UK, there are a couple of brands that are based around yeast extract. And the breweries used to sell uh -huh. the yeast extract to the, uh, to the yeast companies to then make into yeast for bread and also yeast for this yeast spread stuff in terms of Marmite of that, which became a huge brand now owned by Unilever. So, uh, again, it is that funny little connections that move on and on. Yeah. Um, 3M actually have a whole process where they talk about this in terms of that when you think one idea is over, introduce it to something new and different. Huh. Um, 
And I must admit, you know, you, you come across all sorts of names when you're writing these stories. I do think that Dick Drew just sounds like something so, so wonderful. He comes out of the movies somewhere. And he's a, he was a research scientist at 3M. Um, back in the days of the sort of the 1920s, when people like those two-tone cars, you know, with a bright stripe down the side huh. in terms of where it was. But trying to do that back in the 20s was really difficult because what did you stick on to give you that nice sharp line? And if you used something that was too strong a glue, then when you ripped that off, you ripped the other paint off. Uh-huh. And uh, what Dick Drew finally invented was masking tape. And he finally managed to do this, and he he got there. And you think, great, he's done into that, and so he should retire now and live well on that. Um, What was interesting was a few years later, he was introduced to this product called cellophane that one of his competitors, DuPont, had produced. And he looked at it and went, hmm, I could use that. If I put that on the back of my masking tape and not had that thick bit, I might be able to produce something interesting. Surprise, surprise, he invented scotch tape as well. And it is that just sort of cross-fertilization of ideas that you talk about, about, you know, what else can I do with this? How else could I use it? What other places can it go to? Um, That is sometimes just so fascinating in terms of, you know, one of these days I'll draw a tree, you know, that links all all the different brands. You know, it's, you know, seven stages from Kevin Bacon. This is probably seven seven stages from Dick Drew, probably. (laughs) Yeah, they do seem to be interlaced, very much so, at least in some aspects. And that's some of the lessons for us as innovators about, you know, where do ideas come from and how can we try to create more? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I think, you know, you talked about, and I've talked about some old older brands here, you talk about newer brands, uh-huh. and it's not that new, but we do do work with a number of technology companies, content companies, and uh, the, the telecoms companies. And they often say to me, where would you go looking for ideas? And I say, well, think about your own industry. And you go back to, would you believe it was 1973 was the first mobile phone call that was ever made in terms of where it was. Um, and the guy behind it was a guy called Michael Cooper, who was an ex-Marine um, and had gone out from there and was working for Motorola. And at that time, the only mobile phones were the ones that were in cars. And you had to be in a car and doing that. Uh-huh. And they were getting very worried because AT&T were catching them up with the technology. And he kept thinking, what can I do? Is it better battery life? Is it better, you know, coverage? Is it better things? Does it better integrate with the car? And he was getting nowhere. And he went home that night and he sat down there and he turned on the telly and he was watching one of his favorite shows. And there along came none other than William Shatner, playing, of course, James T. Kirk, who flipped open, of course, his communicator. Uh And he said, why am I bothering to try and put it in the car? We want a mobile phone that's a personal mobile phone. And sometime later, after a lot of work, he managed to develop the first, admittedly in those days, brick-sized mobile phones. Um, And the lovely twist of the story was, who did he ring first on that phone? So did he ring his mum, his wife, the company to say it's working? No, he rang AT&T to tell them, we're one up on you of that. You know, what a lovely way of sort of, you know, pulling one over on your, on your competition in terms of where it was. But again, there the moral is actually, if you think about people who are good at predicting the future, sci-fi writers, you know, science fiction, science fantasy is a great place to go. <coughs> 
you know, Star Wars, Star yeah, Trek have been a wonderful source, you know. The Internet of Things is not a million miles away from a replicator that uh, Jean-Luc Picard uses all the time. Yeah, we've actually talked before about one of the foresighting tools that some companies use, Lowe's had used this, the hardware store, mm. is to hire science fiction writers to yeah. kind of invent a view of the future for them and see how they might play into that. I love the Star Trek example, and you know, calling AT&T was good. Being a Trekkie myself, I would have called William Shatner, and that would have just been wonderful. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good one. Yes, actually, that's a good Yeah, I like that. And Motorola is such an iconic company. When I was graduating as an engineering student, and this was late 80s, they were a go-to company for many of my fellow classmates. Yeah. And they've done lots in the communication space, so I appreciate mm. knowing more about mm. the Motorola phone story. But it's also sort of where you are doesn't necessarily really matter. Um, you know, there was a story of a guy called um, Addis. Now, admittedly, I'm going back in time. Um, and Addis was somewhat of a f- uh, colourful character. Um, and he got arrested in uh, Victorian England for um, getting into a fight, let us say, mm-hmm. uh, of that. And so ended up in one of the London jails. And it was there, supposedly, with lots of time on his hands that he was watching someone cleaning the floor with a brush and a broom, you know, one of those old wooden brooms with twigs around the bottom. And he looked at it and he thought, hmm, where else could I use that? And in those days, the way you cleaned your teeth was chewing on a stick or just with your finger. And he thought, actually, if I can reproduce that broom-like thing in a smaller size, could it not become something that we clean our teeth with? and went on to invent the first toothbrush in terms of that. So, you know, even being in jail is no limit to uh, coming up with ideas. It's, you, know, you can find many where, anywhere at any time, really. It gave him time to think, for sure, mm-hmm. and got in- inspiration well, from say, what he saw. You've plenty of time on your hands. <laughs> and took inspiration from what he saw there. That's really good. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. One of the brands that you talk about is one I've been working with recently, not working with, but as a consumer, is Mm. Chewy. Because I've been buying products for my dog and came Mm. across Chewy some time ago and thought, oh, they actually have some pretty good deals and it's an easy place to go to buy things. What's their story that you talk about in the book? Well, the the Chewy story is a really interesting one because... um, the, the two blokes who set it up had actually set up a, a previous internet retail company and it just wasn't really working for them. Uh-huh. And they just felt, you know, 
were they late to the market? What was going on? And actually what they, they looked at was to start looking at themselves and saying, well, actually what interests and excites us and what do we want to do and how do we want to do it? And they suddenly realized that actually they were absolutely passionate about their dogs. You know, they don't talk about, you know, being a dog owner. They talk about being a pet parent of where that is. Huh. And that's really where it started. They, that, that classic phrase where if you can turn your, um, you know, can you turn your passion into your purpose uh, in terms of that? And that's very much what they did. But it's, it's the level when they set out, where they set out and said, you know, Zappo, which is well known for its wonderful customer service, they said, we want to be Zappoed on steroids, on steroids and really do it. And there are some fabulous stories. I'm, I'm going to show my problem here of writing too many stories. I can't remember the name of the lady, but there was a lady who had had two dogs. No, had a dog and a cat. And in the October, her cat of 10 years had died. Oh. And she was just getting over that when in January, her dog of 15 years died. So she rang up Chewy saying, look, I'm really sorry. I know I've just placed an order, but, you know, my dog's died and it's not been a good time. Can I send it back to you and what should I do? Um, and she, she tells the story about being absolutely flabbergasted that the person on the other end immediately said, yes, you know, send it back, we'll refund you, where's your details, and refunded the money immediately but then wanted to keep on talking to her and find out how she was, how things were going, what she was planning to do on the future and all of that. Uh -huh. And she was just bowled over by what, what are known as Tutopians, the people who answer the phone at the other end, who are all pet lovers too. And she thought, this is amazing, and you know, hung up the phone and didn't think too much more of it other than you know, was going to tell some friends. The next morning, a van pulls up outside her house and there's a knock on the door. She goes to the door and there's a delivery person with a big bunch of flowers saying, commiserations from all of us here at Chewy. We, we understand what you're going through. We hope, you know, a little gesture will make you feel a little better on the, you know, after the sad occasion of what's happened. Uh -huh. And it's, it's not a one-off. They do these sorts of things all the time. Wow. And it is amazing the level of dedication in terms of what they've done and go through. So it's not just coming up with that basic idea, but it's then – how do I push that forward? How do I build on it? How do I make myself distinctive in the mm -hmm. marketplace going forward? Um, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And the connection there with Zappos, I think, is really interesting too, right? That the founder said, you know, basically, we want to be the Zappos for dogs. Because both of these companies started not knowing if they could even pull this off, right? Mm -hmm. Zappos, would anyone actually buy shoes, which we tend to try to want to try on, right? And see how they feel. Yeah. Online. And there's been other companies who try to make a business out of delivering dog food that never pulled mm. it off, right? That financially yeah. couldn't make it work. And Chewy's been successful. Very, very successful. And, you know, but it does also go back to that notion where there is a feeling that, you know, a good brand, if you've got a great product, that's fine and you've made it. Unfortunately, that's probably not the case uh, anymore that actually – if you make a good product, other people make products. And I think the story I often tell on that goes right back to almost the origins of, not quite the origins of brandings, but some of the most famous early brands. Um, and if I said, you know, there was, a, there was a chap called Watson in the north of England who invented a great soap, most people would look at me and go, yeah, I expect there probably was. But if you then talked about, you know, William Lever, Lever Lord Leverhulme, 
people would go, oh, yeah, he's the guy who they went on to do Unilever with, didn't they? And what's interesting is Watson did invent the soap. What Lever did was spot the gap in the market. And what he spotted was back in those days, the only sort of store there was was a general store. And you'd walk in and you'd say, oh, can I have, you know, a pound of soap? And the guy would cut you off a pound of soap. And you'd take it and you'd use your soap. And then you'd come back a couple of months later and say, can I have another pound of soap? Now, was that the same soap? Had it been there all the time? Was it a new supplier? Was it going to be as good? You had no idea. You just had to trust. What Lord Lord Lever spotted was going, actually, if I can get consistent and I can make people know that it is the same product to the same quality, they will come back and they will ask for my soap. So he put it in bright packaging. He gave it a name, Sunlight Soap, of that, and started selling it. And, you know, that was... 1884, would you believe, in terms of how long ago it was. But that basis of creating a brand that was a guarantee of quality Uh was actually one of the origins of sort of modern-day branding in terms of going on. It's not just about the product. It's about that trust. It's about building that relationship with your customers as you go forward. Yeah, that consistency. Am I getting the same soap I always get? Am I actually getting a pound? Soap's varied so much. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Simple things like that, just like sliced bread, right? Sometimes we make jokes Mm -hmm. about sliced bread, but that was kind of a big deal was, hey, instead of selling loaves of bread and then having to deal with that, we could slice it for you, make it easier for you to consume. Well, the one, the the slightly more modern than sliced bread that I use, and of course, being British, it's a very, (laughs) you know, very appropriate one is I use a tea example. Um, which is um, one of the big brands over here is called Tetley's. And its big revelation was up until it changed it, tea bags came in squares. So they gave you a round tea bag. Now, all they said was it fits in your mug, so it makes a cup of tea. Didn't say it made a better cup of tea or a quicker cup of tea or a richer smelling. They just said it was round. Uh They got two percentage points in a huge market in the UK by making it round rather than square. But um, I suppose one that um, I'm told the penetration of the brand that I was going to mention is 97% or something in the, U- in the US. Um, and what, what was their big innovation? They turned it upside down. Heinz tomato ketchup. Hmm. What a lovely one. And, you know, nowadays I'm completely used to seeing an upside down bottle, which obviously was facilitated by a very clever piece of, technology and that valve technology that allows you to squeeze it out and then it seals it and stops it dripping. But what was interesting was Heinz had known about the problem for quite a few times. They'd been conducting what's known as ethnographic research, where you go into people's homes and you look around at things. And what they had been finding was all these sorts of tricks that people were doing trying to get the last bit of ketchup out of the bottles, you know, standing it upside down in the fridge using the knife to try and scrape inside it. And it wasn't until sometime later that, you know, somebody managed to put two and two together and suddenly realised, hang on, but all these consumers trying to get the last little bit out, there's this nice new technology over here. As um, as a copywriter said, uh, you know, it soon became uh, Heinz tomato catch down rather than catch up, you know, in terms of uh, what he had in his house. But, you know, very simple little tweaks can sometimes make a big difference. And, you know, people think of innovation as really big. It doesn't have to be really big. Sometimes small changes can have big impacts in the market. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, and in a consumer product like that, like ketchup, changing the packaging is a pretty big innovation, especially when we're doing that. We're solving a real problem. Now that's the one I reach for when I go to the grocery store because otherwise if it's the traditional glass bottle or even the other plastic ones they have, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look in our refrigerator, it's upside down because of that problem. So it's so much easier to get the one that is built upside down. So love the stories. Why don't you give us one more and a favorite one that you have for us to end on? Uh, one more. Um, it's always difficult to pick one more. Um, perhaps, perhaps the one is, you know, how much do you believe in your new product? Um, are you really going to put it on? And I know that there will be managers who will say to the people who come to them, you know, would you put your own money on it? Mm-hmm. Well, would you put your life on it? Would you bet your life on your new product? Um, well, there was a guy who was willing to do that. And he, and he went along to the... America's World Fair um, in uh, in New York at, at Crystal Palace when you when it was held there, and he was up on a platform which seemed to be suspended by a rope, and he had a large axe in his hand, and he took the axe and he swung it at the rope, and he went straight through the rope, and the whole audience and things just went dead, absolutely silent as the platform began to move down. It moved down about six inches, and then came to an immediate stop. The guy was Elijah Otis, and what he had invented was the safety brake for an elevator. And that's why, actually, you know, he's actually now credited with, actually, without him, we wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have the skyscrapers you have, and we wouldn't have the skyscrapers we have. Mm -hmm. That actually having a proper elevator that really did work and was safe was fundamental in actually uh, facilitating the growth of skyscrapers and changing the landscapes of all sorts of things around. But on the other hand, just that moment when he swung the axe, boy, did he believe in his own his own invention there. Otherwise, uh, could have had a very nasty ending. Yeah, and I love that story because there was some frustration leading up to this, right? Because he had invented yeah. this very safe, important safety device and could not get other elevator manufacturers to pay attention. No, that's right. He'd uh, he'd invented it, and he'd got something like um, he'd been going for about a year, and he sold about four of them of that, and that's why he decided that he had to pull out a big stunt in terms of you know you've got to do something to do it. And I think that, as you rightly say, is uh, is another ploy that a number of other people have done um, to greater and lesser extents mm-hmm. in terms of what they do. But that idea of how do you dramatize the real benefit of, of what you've got yep. and bring it to the attention of people in a, in a very busy world out there. That was a pre-YouTube viral moment for him. Yeah, caught, very much Caught so, the yeah. attention. Excellent. Thank you for the stories. Many more in your book if people want to dive into them. Great short stories to read. Really enjoyed it. 75 Marketing Tales to help you find the next big thing. And you end each one of those tales with a brief insight into the innovation that's associated with that. And mm. we've talked about some of those as well. As listeners know, I love quotes. I asked you to bring one for us. Can you share that and tell us why you chose it? Yeah, um, it was. It's interesting. It's like when people say, "What's your favorite um, story?" It was when you said, "Oh, well, so what's your favorite innovation quote?" And I thought, "Oh, there's so many I could pick." Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, I, I picked um, uh, a, what is actually a poem. But I, it, it, and I'll explain why because there are probably two or three reasons why. But the the, the poem, and I probably won't do it, Judge. Uh, justice is um come to the edge she said we can't we're afraid they responded come to the edge she said we can't we will fall they responded come to the edge she said 
And so they came and he pushed them and they flew. And it's it's a lovely one because of that lovely twist at the end and obviously the story writing the twist. But for me, it is about that fact that, you know, there's the age-old story that nine out of ten new products will fail. Now, latest statistics say that's probably an overestimate. It's probably something like seven out of ten. There's still an awful lot of failure. You have to be very brave and to go to that edge and to jump off if you're going to launch something. So I think in celebration of that, that was one of the reasons for it, I I think, of that. Uh And if my book does anything, to encourage one more person to say, actually, I've got a great idea, I'm going to the edge and I'm going to try and make it fly, I'd feel really good about where that is. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's that notion of saying, actually, is that what I'm doing, you know? I've, I've had a hand working with lots of clients and lots of innovations. It's my job to be someone on the side there who just gives them a gentle nudge and gives them that final little push to say, this will succeed. Go on, you've got to go and do it of, of where it is. So it, it works on many levels for me. It does. I appreciate that tie into the work that you do. And many of us just need that confidence to push into what looks like the unknown and see if we fly or not. Thanks for sharing that poem. I think it it does work very well for us as innovators. As many people look around and say, you know, everything meaningful has already been done and already been created and, you know, there's nothing new here to find. Everyday Innovators, why this podcast is called Everyday Innovators and the people that listen, we're not wired that way. We constantly look at problems we run into and go, gosh, there's got to be a better way for this. And maybe I'm the person to help with that, right? I like that poem very much. How can people get their hands on your book and just find out more about the work that you do? Um, so the book, um, Inspiring Innovation, is is out in Europe. It's, I think it's available on, you know, normal uh, websites. Surprise, surprise. I think Amazon has got it. I think it's launched formally in the States in July. So it will be out out from then. Um, or you can go to the publishers, Lid Publishing, and uh, they've got that. So um, please do that. Or um, get in contact with us at the Value Engineers. I'm sure we can help you out if there's there's any problem getting hold of that. Okay. And I'll make sure the link to the book is in the show notes. And you mentioned value engineers. Tell us about that. The value engineers, um, yeah, we're a, we call ourselves a brand consultancy. We fit between management consultants who maybe do business change and the slightly more executional advertising, um, PR, design companies. We work much more in the areas of strategy, innovation, and, and brand positioning. And over the years, have worked with companies, as I said earlier, like eLeather, but we've been lucky enough to work with the Unilevers, the, the Angry Birds, the Playstations of this world. So we've had a lovely mix of clients from classic FMCG right through to some of the modern leading-edge brands as well. Very good. A lot of interesting companies that I work with as well. Giles, mm-hmm. I appreciate the stories. Thanks for compiling them for us, and thanks for sharing your time and going through some of them today. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed them. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that you can create products that customers love. And that is what we are about as everyday innovators, always looking for ways to add more value to our products to make products that customers love. Hope you enjoyed some of those stories from Giles. Again, you can check out the show notes and the summary of those stories at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 231. You know it. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. 
For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.